Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Mark. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. The gospel of the Lord. Praise be to you, Lord Christ. morning. Let's pray together. Father, your word is a lamp unto our feet and it's a light unto our path. And so I pray, give us eyes to see it. Give us ears to hear it. And more than anything, give us a heart that would want to follow you in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, Have you ever been on the receiving end of an unexpected phone call? Now, granted, Most phone calls are unexpected, but you know what I mean. The kind of phone call that changes the course of the day, or depending on the magnitude, it can even change the course of life. Okay, I'm talking about Neo getting a phone call that leads him to Morpheus and helps him figure out the matrix. Okay, or uh, Liam Neeson, I can't remember his character's name, but in the movie Taken, receiving a bone-chilling phone call that his teenage daughter has been kidnapped by sex traffickers. And he either has to find her very fast or he's going to lose her forever. Or maybe uh, Martin Cooper's phone call. Everybody knows Martin, right? You all know Martin and don't know it. Martin Cooper was an engineer turned inventor working for Motorola in the early 1970s. And on April 3rd, 1973, he made a phone call to Bell Labs, which was Motorola's main competitor at that point in time. And he made that call while standing in the middle of the street, 6th Street in New York City. His phone call was a trash-talking phone call. And he was trash-talking because he was using a cordless mobile phone in the middle of the street. That was a life-changing call for all of us. I had a call like that once. I was 13. My then 15-year-old sister, Ashley, had collapsed on the floor. She was rushed to the hospital. They assumed it would be appendicitis, but after surgery found out she had an apple-sized tumor. And it was deemed malignant, later stage non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. I didn't know what to do with that kind of news at that time, at the age of 13, I stayed with my grandparents while my parents were remaining by her side, accompanying her back and forth to MD Anderson in Houston, and I felt completely left in the dark. I felt alone. I felt isolated. I felt angry that God would let something like this happen to someone like her. She was the obvious Christian sibling in the family, some of us not so obvious. I knew it could take her life. 
One evening, I remember the phone rang. My grandmother answered it on a long corded phone. And she said, it's your dad. He wants to talk to you. And I remember thinking to myself, he's going to tell me she's dying. I silently answered the phone. And on the other end, I heard something I'll never forget. My dad said, Bud, that's my family nickname. Bud, they can't find the cancer spreading where they thought it would be. She has a great shot. A great shot at making it through this. And you might say, it seems selfish that you're talking about yourself. That's really a call that changed her life, but it changed mine too. It was eye-opening. It was significant. And it didn't just inspire something in me. It demanded something from me. I started to see life differently, even at the age of 13. That's what a significant call actually does. It's an epiphany. It's eye-opening. It inspires. It makes demands of us. And in our passage, a life-changing call is made by Jesus to four men, and they'll never be the same. Now, at, th- at this point, we've seen Jesus baptized and tempted, but now for the first time, we get to hear him speak. And these are his first words. The time has come. The time has come. Th- that word time is kairos. It's referring to an exceptional moment in time, like, like the wedding coordinator who says to the bride in the very back, the time has come before she processes down the aisle. It's an exceptional time. It's not the use of chronos, which is a more common usage of time, just like the seconds and minutes that are passing us by right now. This is kairos. This is a kairotic moment. This is an exceptional time. And you might ask, for what? Well, for the kingdom of God to break in. For God to obviously and exceptionally intervene. It's what we want for him to do all the time. And he's doing it here. He's doing it Now the time has come. And what we see from Jesus in this passage is that his first order of exceptional business, it's not to establish a preaching ministry. It's not to immediately wander around performing miracles to validate his authority. And he doesn't go to the capital city of Jerusalem to try to network and make introductions with the political and the religious elites of the day. His first order of business is to go to ordinary men and to call them to himself. That's actually the essence of Christianity. It's it's more than a call to a creed or a confession. It's more than a, a call to adherence to Torah or law. It's more than just a worldview that helps someone navigate this very difficult life. It's a call to a person. Christianity is first and foremost a call to Jesus, and then we see a call from him too. And it's a life-changing call. Mark tells us it's urgent, it's disruptive, and yet at the same time, it's dignifying. So first, urgent. Uh, We see in this passage, it's pregnant with time language. We just discussed in verse 15 where Jesus says the exceptional time has come, but it's there again in each verse. In verse 17... Instead of a simple imperatival command, follow me, there's actually first an interjection on the front end. It's the Greek word dut. That sounds forgettable. Dut. 
but doot is an interjection of emphasis and speed, which, which means you could literally say, come now, follow me, which if you have an NIV Bible is exactly how it's translated. Come, follow me. And then you see it displayed in verses 18 and 19 and 20. Tim mentioned this in his first sermon of Epiphany, that unique to Mark's gospel is the frequent use of the Greek adverb euthus, meaning immediately. Everything fills in a rush. Immediately, immediately, immediately. And euthus is found twice in this passage, the first time describing the reaction of Peter and Andrew to the call of Jesus, but then also describing the call of Jesus to John and James as they immediately got out of the boat. Here's the point. When when Jesus comes, it is suddenly. And when he calls, it's urgent. Follow me is not really an offer. It's not really an invitation. It's a command. And it's a command that's to be responded to immediately, urgently. This same idea is presented in the context of the epistolary reading Paul's talking, it seems, badly about marriage. He's talking about the opportunity cost of getting married. I guess you could call that premarital counseling, too. It's kind of the same point. His argument is not an anti-marriage argument, really. It's a pro-singleness argument. That, That singleness allows a person to live with a greater sense of spiritual urgency because a married person with all the benefits of marriage, a significant consequence is that you become more concerned with what he calls worldly troubles. You live a more distracted life. And his point is the call to follow Jesus and live for God's kingdom is to be responded to with a sense of urgency. If married, as if single. And it also dignifies the single life and a special time to live with a sense of urgency. And yet, I think so many people put this off. Perhaps that's you. I think it's interesting, the contrast of experiences between the seasons of the church, and especially Epiphany and Advent. Uh, Advent is largely about waiting. Almost to where at the end, you're ready for it to be over. You're tired of waiting on Advent, okay? But it's primarily about us waiting on God. And then quickly, it changes. Instead of it being about us waiting for him to intervene, to change things, to do something, epiphany comes, and it changes the conversation with our souls. It reopens our eyes to the fact that God has intervened and that he's still intervening in our lives. And so we're faced with the reality that the issue might not really be that we're having to wait on God, but that we so often make him wait on us. Our tendency is to put him off. We're spiritually slow people. We're passive. We tend to delay or downplay commitment to him. We treat him kind of like an important but undesired house project. Like, I'll get to that later on. When something breaks or caves in or leaks or falls apart, then I'll get to it. But maybe passivity isn't the only culprit here. Maybe it also has to do with fear, fear of becoming too Christian. One of those kinds of Christians, right? A sold out type of Christian, a Christian fanatic of sorts. And 
Listen, we, we've seen the ugly side of religious fanaticism, and it understandably troubles us all. But our response to that tends to be that we prefer to practice, practice our spirituality with a, an over-restraint. Austin, Texas, all things in moderation. Don't be too passionate. Don't be too committed. Don't be too resolute. Don't be too dedicated. Don't be too serious. Don't make this an urgent kind of thing. Tame it down and put it off. There's a problem. There is no such thing as part-time deferred discipleship. Listen, we can't expect the call of Jesus to be always open and available to us while we are slow and unresponsive to him. He will gladly have all of you, but he will have none of that. The time has come. The kingdom is at hand. Leave your boats immediately. Come now. Follow him. The language here is clear. The call is urgent, which means it's also disruptive. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, Jesus sees Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea because they were fishermen. And Jesus says, follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And then going farther, he sees James and John, his brother. They were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and immediately followed him. This is so inconvenient. First, Jesus interrupts work. But Peter and Andrew were casting their nets when he calls because they're fishermen. And the Sea of Galilee happens to be an excellent place for the business of fishing. Jesus interrupts it. And then, maybe more disruptive, he disrupts family. James and John leave their dad on the boat. Can you imagine being Zebedee? We can hope there was some kind of reunion between them all. But to be frank, we have no record of that. This is very likely a mostly or permanent departure from their father. And for their father in the boat with the hired servants to see the family business going away. This is incredibly disruptive. But the call of Jesus often is, at least initially so. It comes at the perfectly wrong time. And perhaps he comes into the center of our lives because he intends to become the center of our life. That the call is not just an urgent call, but he's an ultimate one. Uh, Tim Keller wrote a very reader-friendly commentary on the Gospel of Mark uh, called The King's Cross. This is what he had to say about this specific verse. He says, Jesus' call is drastic. Jesus wants us to follow so comprehensively and so fully that all of their attachments look like left behind nets in comparison. If you would say, I will follow you if, whatever is on the other side of that if is your real master, your real rabbi, the thing you're following. Makes me think of a conversation that I had with a woman once. Uh, She and her husband were not believers when they got married, but they were really happy together. One of those couples that's not only the perfect fit on the front side of marriage, but seems to also be the perfect fit on the back side, should it say on the wedding, on the front side of the wedding, but it seems to be the perfect fit on the back side of the wedding as well. 
They didn't have the first or second year blues. They just seemed to be the perfect pair for each other until she became a Christian. A neighbor who turned into a friend introduced her to Jesus. And she became a believer. And when she did, her newfound faith became the most important thing in her life, but it became the most annoying thing in her husband's life. To him, her newfound faith had completely disrupted and ruined their marriage. Created an incredibly difficult situation. And he's not wrong. That's incredibly difficult. What was interesting to me is I asked her a question, not about her husband, but about her and her response. I'll never forget. I'm going to read it to you. But I said, if I asked her if she ever wondered why God didn't come to her before she got married. And this is what she said. The only way to get through to me was to interrupt me in my marriage. It was precisely because God came to me in the middle of my marriage that caused me to believe. I never would have believed otherwise. And then I remember with tears, she just said, it's been worth it to me. With tears, it's been worth it to me. I think Peter and Andrew and James and John, they would resonate with her story. What could be more important in life than work and family? And yet Jesus calls fishermen out of their boats. He calls sons away from their fathers. Jonah too would resonate with this, our Old Testament reading. He was doing everything in his power to run away from the call of God. It didn't end well for him. He ended up overboard in the belly of a great fish and vomited on a seashore. Incredibly disruptive, a divine disruption, a divine disruption that was intended actually to reorient him to something far, far greater. Uh, One of my favorite books, The Hobbit. The movie's okay. The book's better. Uh, It reminds me of, it's really famous, introductory scene between Gandalf and Bilbo when Gandalf disrupts Bilbo's life. This This is what Gandalf said. I'm looking for someone to share in an adventure that I'm arranging. And it's very difficult to find anyone. Bilbo said, well, I should think so. In these parts, we are plain quiet folk. We have no use for adventures. Nasty, disturbing, uncomfortable things. Make you late for dinner. I can't think what anybody sees in them. And then Gandalf says, well, you'll have a tale or two to tell when you come back. Bilbo said, you can promise that I'll come back? And Gandalf says, no, but if you do, you will never be the same again. He's disrupting his life, but it's a means to a greater end. It's intended to reorient life towards something greater. And Gandalf's right. If you do, if you follow him, you will never be the same again. He will lead you into a new and dignified way of life, not with less purpose, but more purpose. Not with less pleasure, but with different pleasure. Not with less meaning, but with more meaning. Because when Jesus calls you to him, he intends for you to join him also in what he's doing. This is shown by the rabbi dynamic. It's actually a reversal of what was typical in that day. Typically in this day, students chose their teachers. So a student would find a rabbi who had a reputation 
And then they would want to learn, therefore, underneath that rabbi, not just the law, but also how to live. And so in the system, normally, it was the student choosing the rabbi, but Jesus reverses that. He presents himself as a rabbi that's choosing his students. It's fascinating. And it makes you wonder what kind of reputation of student is he looking for? And what we see is that of all the persons he could have chosen and chased after, he's fishing for fishermen. Ordinary people through whom he will do world-altering things. And not only that, with whom he will share extraordinary things that are only his own to share, like a rabbi with his students. And so later he says to his disciples, his followers, in a variety of ways this, all that I have received to do from the Father I give to you, And then he says this in a variety of ways. All that is mine is now yours. And he's saying this to these ordinary people that following him is sharing in his very life and in his very life's purpose. That Jesus enhances everything that he disrupts. And it makes me sad because this is contrary to how so many people see Christianity. They see it through the lens of what they're giving up, of what it's taking away from them. And contrary to that, life in and with him enhances and exalts and enlarges all things. It makes sense of all things. And Peter later learned this. He was his first people called out of the boat to follow this rabbi. And when he finally wrote a letter about it, this is what he had to say. We are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that we might proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. It's a life-expanding call, not just inspiring, but demanding something of us. Those called by him are chosen, imbued with purpose, declared royal and holy and loved and precious to God so that they might proclaim the excellencies of him who called them. There it is, the dignified life purpose. What Jesus did first in an exceptional time, we follow suit. He fished for men. We fish for men. Proclaiming in word and deed his excellencies to them. Listen, if that sounds boring, I would want to ask you if you feel spiritually bored. Because I would say this might be part of it. That your spiritual vibrancy is directly related to how much you're fishing. And that a lot of people who tell me that they're bored in their faith, I listen and then think, your faith is boring. It's not proclaiming the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness, into marvelous light. It's so boring. This is the dignity that we get to live in. And listen, I'm not talking about door-to-door evangelism or using your social media as a Christian dashboard. I'm not talking about a crusade at the Moody Center. I'm not even trying to say those things are illegitimate in our present day and age or in Austin, Texas. That's like fishermen arguing about what's the best way to cast. I want to change the conversation. I want to draw our attention away from method and to talk about location. 
Because I think that's where Mark goes. He seems to have far more as he narrates Jesus' life to say about where and who more than how. Where Jesus goes fishing tells us something about going fishing for men. So from this moment, Jesus goes to the synagogue. He goes to church. And he doesn't go there just because he's a religious person. He goes there because the people need him there. Some of the most curious and yet confused people are in the church. But then right after that, he invites others to come to his house as a warm host. And then right after that, he goes into others' houses as an invited guest. And then he heads to the beach because there's lots of people there. Is this sounding too boring? Too regular? Too mundane? That's part of the point. And then after the beach, he goes to the mountains. I'm starting to want to follow Jesus. Beach, mountains, this sounds great. And then after the mountains, he returns back to the lake. And then he goes in and out of different neighborhoods. It shows that he's tending to a variety of needs, whether they're friends or strangers, people that are hurting that he can help. And then he heads to the marketplace where the high-level business is conducted. I'm going to stop there. Do you see the point? We frequent these same types of places and rub shoulders with these same types of people all the time. The real point is that following Jesus and becoming fishers of men really just requires a change of intention. It's wherever you are. That Jesus isn't calling us to be removed or antisocial or weird in some way. He wants us to be in the world, just different from it. And then when we're in there, we go fishing. Where should I fish? Where are you? Do it. It's urgent. Do it now. Do it immediately. Fish for men. And see if your spiritual life doesn't explode. If we want to follow Mark to the very end, we know where it ends. Location matters. It ends at a cross. We tend to think of that as the place that Jesus died for us, and it's true. But you know what he's doing there? He's going fishing. He's fishing for us. Never was the net cast wider. And he gave up his life that ours might be dignified. And friends, if you follow Jesus, that is exactly where you're going to begin. You're going to face his cross and see him giving up his life. And you're going to have to consider the reality of whether or not you're willing to give up yours. To leave the boats. To leave your father and the servants. And to follow after him. But Gandalf was right. If you do, you'll never be the same. Come now. Follow him. In the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Father, I pray, I pray, I pray. Open or reopen our eyes to the wonder of your calling voice. Woo us even. Wake us up if we've fallen asleep or grown lazy. And remind us yet again of all that you've done that we might have the joy and the privilege and the honor of following you. We ask this in the strong name of Jesus Christ. Amen.